This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls. On our programs, we explore the art and science of peacemaking. We consider examples of effective peacemaking in our history and talk with people who share ideas about how to make peace in our daily lives, within ourselves, and in our circles of common experience, like our families, our neighborhoods, our schools, our workplaces. And we also look at ways to address challenges to peace between nations around the globe. On occasion, we'll devote a program to a conversation about a Nobel Peace Prize winner to learn more about the recipient and or the issue their work addresses. Today, we spotlight the 2007 winners of the Nobel Peace Prize, former U.S. Vice President Al Gore, and the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. By awarding the prize to Gore and the IPCC, the Nobel Committee seemed interested in promoting the link between climate change and the threat to peace. Could the unchecked effects of climate change lead to conflicts and civil war within nations, or even war between nations? Could a collective effort to save the planet from the harmful consequences of climate change actually promote peaceful cooperation within and between nations? Ahead on Peace Talks Radio, we'll hear comments from two scholars who've studied the possible links between climate change and conflict. But first, let's hear some excerpts from the Nobel Prize accepting addresses of both Al Gore and Vajengla Pachawi of the IPCC at the Nobel Award Ceremony in Oslo, Norway in December of 2007. First, Vajengla Pachawi. Peace can be defined as security and the secure access to resources that are essential for living. A disruption in such access could prove disruptive of peace. In this regard, climate change will have several implications as numerous adverse impacts are expected for some populations in terms of access to clean water, access to sufficient food, stable health conditions, ecosystem resources, security of settlements. Indeed, there are many lessons in human history which provide adequate warning about the chaos and destruction that could take place if we remain guilty of myopic indifference to the progressive erosion and decline of nature's resources. Much has been written, for instance, about the Maya civilization, which flourished during 250 to 950 AD, but collapsed largely as a result of serious and prolonged drought. Even earlier, some 4,000 years ago, a number of well-known Bronze Age cultures also crumbled, extending from the Mediterranean to the Indus Valley, including the civilizations which had blossomed in Mesopotamia. More recent examples of societies that collapsed or faced chaos on account of depletion or degradation of natural resources include the Khmer Empire in Southeast Asia, Eastern Ireland, and several others. Changes in climate have historically determined periods of peace as well as conflict. Further, in recent years, several groups have studied the link between climate and security. These have raised the threat of dramatic population migration, conflict, and war over water and other resources, as well as a realignment of power among nations. Hazards from the impacts of climate change are therefore a reality today in some parts of the world, and we cannot hide under global averages and the ability of affluent societies to deal with climate-related threats, as opposed to the condition of vulnerable communities in poor regions of the globe. It is time to make peace with the planet. We must quickly mobilize our civilization with the urgency and resolve that has previously been seen only when nations mobilized for war. 
These prior struggles for survival were won when leaders found words at the 11th hour that released a mighty surge of courage, hope, and readiness to sacrifice for a protracted and mortal struggle. These were not comforting and misleading assurances that the threat was not real, not imminent, that it would afflict others but not ourselves, that ordinary life might be lived even in the presence of extraordinary threat, that providence could be trusted to do for us what we would not do for ourselves. No, these were calls to come to the defense of the common future. They were calls upon the courage, generosity, and strength of entire peoples citizens of every class and condition who were ready to stand against the threat once asked to do so. Now comes the threat of climate crisis, a threat that is real, rising, imminent, and universal. Once again, it is the 11th hour. The penalties for ignoring this challenge are immense and growing, and at some near point would be unsustainable and unrecoverable. For now, we still have the power to choose our fate. And the remaining question is only this, have we the will to act vigorously and in time, or will we remain imprisoned by a dangerous illusion? Mahatma Gandhi awakened the largest democracy on earth and forged a shared resolve with what he called Satyagraha, or truth force. In every land, the truth, once known, has the power to set us free. Truth also has the power to unite us and bridge the distance between me and we, creating the basis for common effort and shared responsibility. There is an African proverb that says, if you want to go quickly, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. We need to go far, quickly. Former U.S. Vice President and climate crisis crusader Al Gore we also heard from Vajengla Pachawi of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Excerpts from their Nobel Peace Prize acceptance speeches from December of 2007. Today on Peace Talks Radio, our host Carol Boss takes us into more conversation about this topic. First with Dan Smith, Secretary General of International Alert, an independent peace-building organization that works in over 20 countries to promote lasting peace and security in communities affected by violent conflict. Dan Smith is the author of the report, A Climate of Conflict, The Links Between Climate Change, Peace, and War. Smith says understanding this link between the effects of climate change and world peace and security means understanding what he calls the consequences of consequences. Global warming, which is um, caused by, uh, largely by uh, carbon emissions, leads to changes in weather patterns. And those changes in weather patterns mean then that there are consequences like uh, rising sea levels, melting uh, glaciers, rainy seasons, some places get longer, in some places there's less rainfall, the crop cycle gets shorter, and so on. And then as you follow through, all of those, the physical effects, have further consequences in the sense that they make uh, the lives of people harder. Uh, for example, in Peru, the melting of the tropical glaciers is a really serious problem. Most of those glaciers will have melted by 2015. And while to begin with that means that there will be um, uh, an overabundant supply of water, in relatively short time frame there's actually going to be shortages of water 
and west of the Andes, which is where three-quarters of the uh, population of Peru lives, currently 98% of their fresh water supply is from the glaciers. So the overwhelming proportion of the water supply for the vast majority of the population of, of Peru is under threat from climate change. Now, what is going to be the consequences of that? Um, is it possible that, for example, water prices will rise, that left um, to itself, this um, result will produce uh, water profiteering? Um, how will ordinary people respond to water profiteering? We've actually seen from within Peru that they respond with protest and that sometimes those protests have turned violent. What will be the further effects of that? All the time we are tracing through the consequences of the consequences and trying to look at what are the risks which are being generated here. Because what we want to do is to say, well, how could, how could it be possible to intervene? Uh, how could it be possible for the government of Peru possibly backed by the Organization of American States, perhaps with the help of the Inter-American Development Bank or with the help of foreign donors, how could they uh, intervene in order to reduce those risks and start um, breaking this chain of consequences of consequences and turn it in a different direction? And I think sometimes people sort of find it a bit difficult to get their heads round all of the imponderables in this. And the only thing which I can say in response to that is, well, we have to get our heads around all of these imponderables. The future is going to be different from the past. And we, if we're going to survive that future, and if we're going to even prosper in that future, we have to figure out the ways in which it could be different. And where those ways are are negative and potentially even disastrous, then we've got to figure out a counter-strategy. Something that was really striking for me in the report was um, the concept that no conflict ever has a single cause. And I'm wondering if we can talk for a few minutes about Darfur. You say that Darfur is actually an exemplary case showing how the physical consequences of climate change interact with other factors to trigger violent conflict. Yes, that's right. Darfur has been referred to by various people, including British politicians, as being the first climate change conflict. And the implication of that is that in Darfur, climate change caused the conflict, caused the displacement of um, some millions of people, caused the death of uh, maybe two, three hundred thousand civilians has caused the serious abuse of human rights and, and so on. And we say, no, it's always misleading to say that one thing caused that conflict. War, you know, is a really serious enterprise, and people do not enter upon this lightly. They enter upon it because of uh, the interplay of a number of different factors, which either leaves them with no with a sense of no alternative except to go to war, or the sense of a very big advantage to be gained if they do go to war. But it's never a, an enterprise which is, which is taken up lightly. And in Darfur, you have a long, long history of relations between different groups. Uh, these relations include um, some which are competitive and, and rivalries and some... Uh, different groups cooperating with each other. It's not quite as simple as saying that these are 
Arabs and um, Africans who are in conflict with each other. It's not quite as simple as saying that it's herders and farmers who are in conflict with each other. And during the 70s and 80s, there was the beginning of a sort of a rising tide of violent conflict in the Darfur region, which mostly didn't get any international attention uh, because as far as conflict in the Sudan was concerned, we were mostly paying attention to the north-south uh, conflict. And, and Darfur, I think, in most international perception, was not even a sideshow. It wasn't even that big. But the pressure from extended drought in the 1970s and the 1980s has made all of these already existing conflict divisions much, much worse. During the 90s, the escalation in violence was was quite marked, and um, it blew up to its um, current dimensions in, in 2003. And so w- what we've seen unfolding in Darfur is the interaction between uh, climate change in the form of the much more extended and much worse drought than had previously been experienced, together with political division, um, the marginalization of the Darfur region, uh, a callous attitude from Khartoum, Um, a certain amount of traditional ethnic division and tribal divisions and so on, all of these factors interplaying with each other. And so where where we get to in our argument is not to say climate change will cause conflict, but to say climate change interacting with other factors, other, if you like, weaknesses in the political, social, economic makeup of a country can seriously increase the risk of armed conflict. And that, that's what we looked into in our report. There's so much discussion going on about all of this right now. And there are those who write about, those who speak about and believe that the link between climate change and conflict is tenuously made and has not been demonstrated. And how do you respond to that? Well, I've seen uh, some of these studies, and they're serious studies. But I think the thing to bear in mind with all of this is there are two things, right? One is those people who've been thinking about global warming and climate change over uh, the past couple of decades have rightly taught us to understand that the future is going to be different from the past. So if you research past patterns of the relationship between uh, environment or climate and conflict and you don't find a clear relationship you may be accurately researching what did happen from, let's say, 1960 to 1999, but this may not be telling you what is likely to happen from now and henceforth. And the second thing is that we are not talking about making hard and fast predictions. We're talking about risk, and we're talking about the management of risk. And if there is a case to be made, as we believe there is, and let's put it out there and argue it back and forth, that there is a serious risk of um, conflict as a result of the interaction between the consequences of climate change and other social reality, then surely something ought to be done about it. I, I think the argument is really as simple as that. If there's a serious risk of um, an accident, 
shouldn't you do something to try to prevent that accident? Shouldn't you drive more safely? Shouldn't you walk on the pavement instead of in the middle of the highway? And so on and so forth. It's, it's really no more complicated than that. And I don't think that arguments which show that there's no proof of a connection between climate change and conflict over the previous three decades or four decades are any kind of a guide whatsoever as to what the links could be and what we should um, do out of sensible caution over the next two to three decades. Do you have suggestions, something that listeners here in the United States can um, take to heart? Is there anything that we can do? Why should it be of concern to us? First of all, it should be of concern to to you and to us because we're humans and because um, out of pure human solidarity, people are going to suffer from this. Secondly, you know, when people... um, face really severe problems in the places where they live, they're likely to move. And um, migration is um, not necessarily a problem, but it needs to be handled properly and it needs to be faced with, you know, with, with clear planning and with foresight to see, uh, to see how best to handle this. I think that the sort of things that uh, listeners could think about um, in relation to this, one is, I want to stress again, that although mitigation uh, by reducing uh, carbon uh, emissions, so using less energy, although that's going to have an effect only slowly, it is absolutely essential that we all get involved in that. And there are things which you can do which range from using low-energy light bulbs through to uh, letters to your elected representatives uh, or which way you vote in any uh, local, state, or national election um, where, as an active citizen, you can have uh, an influence on these things. Uh, Secondly, when it comes to the question of adaptation, especially in poor countries, I would say that the first thing right now that has to happen is to get this issue onto the political agenda. And that can partly happen because um, governments make a case out of it at the United Nations and the Security Council or whatever. It can happen to some degree because the Nobel... Peace Prize Committee um, gives the award. Uh, More modestly, we can write a report from International Alert which um, uh, gets some people thinking and talking about it. And more generally, people can talk and think about it, uh, talk with each other, discuss it, get it talked about in schools, in local newspapers, raise it with again with elected representatives, um, have it talked about on television and radio phone-in programs and so on. It's just getting the issue discussed is the first step towards getting anything done about it. Most people, when they think about global warming, are still thinking about global warming as being far off, uh, going to happen in the future. It's actually unfolding right now. Action about it needs to be done now, and the risks of it are much greater than we had previously thought because it's not simply about the natural calamities that could happen. It's about the social calamities that could follow on after that. So get talking, get thinking, get this into the politics of today. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're talking about the link between climate change and world peace and security. We'll continue in a moment with Dan Smith of International Alert 
and author of the report, A Climate of Conflict, The Links Between Climate Change, Peace, and War. More after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Since 2002, Peace Talks Radio has been presenting programs for public radio and for the web, and you can hear all of them online today at peacetalksradio.com. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and today we're reflecting on the 2007 Nobel Peace Prize Award given to Al Gore and the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Later in the program, we'll talk with Thomas Homer Dixon, who oversees the Peace and Conflict Studies Department at the University of Toronto. Right now, though, we return to our conversation with Dan Smith of International Alert, an independent peace-building organization. Smith is also the author of a report called A Climate of Conflict, The Links Between Climate Change, Peace, and War. He's talking with our host, Carol Boss. I want to ask you your reaction to the awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize to Al Gore, and um, the IPCC? Well, I think it was extremely important. The Nobel Peace Prize has been used several times during the past uh, two decades to bring issues up to the top of international attention. And I think it works best when those issues are ready to move up because of uh, other work which has been going on. The thing about 2007 was that uh, that was pre-designated as the year in which the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change would bring out its fourth, what it's called, assessment report, which is the basic uh, survey of scientific opinion all around the world about uh, global warming, why it's happening, to what degree it's happening, and what consequences it will have. And so... For those within the field of climate change, you could say, um, 2007 was going to be a big year anyway. And the reports of that uh, panel, they, they come out in the form of working group reports. So that I, I think there was one in the spring and then one in the early summer and one in midsummer. And each one was getting a great deal of, of press coverage and press report. Scientific opinion had moved on since the last one. The consensus was broader. So in a lot of ways, the ground was really prepared. And then the, um, the Nobel Peace Prize is announced in October of each year. And the summation meeting of the uh, intergovernmental panel process was in November, where they launched their final synthesis report. Then you had the Bali report. Oh, sorry, the Bali Conference. And then you had the actual awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize. So I think that publicists could hardly have designed a better 
international um, awareness-raising campaign. And I think you can see now the sort of the level of awareness has really ratcheted up. It's not going to slip back. We've mo- moved to new levels of understanding uh, about this issue as, as, a, as a general global public. Can you talk about the idea of um, the necessity for countries, regions to adapt, that whole concept of adaptation? Sure. How do people respond to this? How do they adapt? Quite recently in um, Britain, we had to face uh, an issue which was the highest surge in the sea level in the North Sea, which is the sea to the east of Great Britain, uh, between us and uh, Germany, Denmark, Norway, and so on. Um, the highest surge in that, the level in that sea ever recorded, and this is almost certainly uh, one consequence of, of global warming. Um, it so happens that actually my daughter works for uh, a city council uh, in that area that would be most affected by this, which is a very flat area, which could in principle be really devastated by floods from rising sea level. But in fact, the adaptation measures have been undertaken. The sandbags are in place. Um, Buildings have been built in particular ways. The sea walls are there. The river walls are there. And there were the systems for tracking the rise in the sea level and as it um, caused rise in river levels coming upstream. Um, All of the water levels rose, but they didn't rise too high. And the result was no disaster. And as actually in a way you could say no news you know um but the thing was that what had happened was an example of successful adaptation to um a, essentially a, na- a threat from from nature and the thing is of course that the united kingdom is a rich country which by the standards of many of the uh, countries we're talking about in the um, in the developing world, we're a well-governed country. We may have all kinds of irritation with our government, but basically we have good governance. We have responsible institutions which work efficiently, um, and as a result, adaptation to that kind of challenge is reasonably straightforward. But if you take, let's say, Bangladesh, um, where there are tens of millions of people who are uh, at risk, they're vulnerable to the cyclones, which are partly produced or, or being made worse by climate change. Um, they're vulnerable to other effects of, of climate change in a poor country, which is not well governed. So adaptation is much more difficult for them because they face a bigger challenge, plus because they have less resources to do it. Therefore, they need our assistance in order to be able to do it successfully. So international cooperation is a big part of it. It's absolutely fundamental. In, in fact, on the one hand, international cooperation is crucial. Uh, on the second hand, the role of the national government is, is absolutely crucial to it. And on the third hand, if you've got one spare, you need to have the engagement in this of people in their local communities, where they're going to be affected by the problem Uh, where they know what the alternatives are which they face. And I think that we really need, in in countries like Bangladesh or Liberia or the Democratic Republic of Congo, wherever, against all the odds, we need to have clear discussions in which people can understand 
what are the risks of climate change and its consequences, and understand that although they haven't caused this problem, um, and it's the rich north which has caused it, and it's we who ought to be um, changing our ways and, and, and mitigating the issue, as I said before, nonetheless, they could pay a, really the most severe price unless they learn how to adapt, and we need to be helping with that. And in your report, you, um, a phrase that um, I, I read over and over again is not only the – it's the notion of a different approach that you talk about being possible, but you say it's based on peace building and engaging communities in a social process that will um, help adaptation happen. Yeah. The, there are two starting points for this, really. One is that – um, as an organization which looks at peace building, which works on that, and we work in 20 countries uh, around the world, we're facing the issue of very, very vulnerable populations who are trying to work their way out of the consequences of, of civil war. And efforts which they make uh, in this direction are going to be increasingly um, hindered um, uh, by the effects of climate change over the, the coming one or two decades. So the first thing is that where we are trying to build peace, we have to include in that adaptation to climate change. You can also look at this the other way around. I mean, in the Philippines, for example, um, the pattern of typhoons there is changing. And many places that have not previously normally been hit by typhoons have been hit by them in the last couple of years. And they're less well prepared. In the places where typhoons have usually hit, and they've got a lot of experience of them, they've learned how to build their houses and other buildings in a way which is really pretty resilient. Uh, but in the areas where they've never needed to do that, then they've never done that. So now they have to learn how to do that. But at the same time, as they need to learn how to do that, they've got. You have to take account of the fact that there are essentially uh, two uh, major violent conflicts that have been going on in the Philippines over the years: one between the government and the Communist Party, uh, and one between the government and um, various um, liberation groups in Mindanao, in the south of the Philippines. So if you're going to adapt to climate change, you need to be building peace at the same time. So this, this was the starting point. It's this double-headed challenge. But what we found as we went into it was that many of the, the activities that you would carry out in order to adapt successfully to the threat of climate change are the same as the kind of activities that you do in order to build peace. And this is because the key to it in both cases is the involvement of the community at the base. You've got to have government support for this. It's got to be led and inspired from the national level. Almost certainly that needs international assistance for resourcing it and for providing encouragement. But if you don't have the energy at the community level, if you don't have the drive coming from there, from local leaders, from traditional leaders, and from elected leaders in the local governments and the provisional government, uh, provincial governments and so on, then you're not actually going to be able to take this forward. And that's equally true about adaptation to climate change 
and about peace building. So it's a it's a single unified strategy. This can't be done top down on command. It can only be done bottom up with the involvement of ordinary people. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today we're exploring the link between global climate change and peace and security with Dan Smith, Secretary General of International Alert. He's the author of the report, A Climate of Conflict, The Links Between Climate Change, Peace, and War. Have you done a lot of traveling as a result of um, your position in the organization and also um, in authoring this report? And if so, have you traveled to any of these regions? And I want to ask you if there was any particular experience or anything that you observed that was of um, great surprise to you. I'll, I'll tell you one thing, and I think I think it allows to allows us to end on a little bit of a positive note, because in uh, December uh, I was in Manila uh, in the Philippines, and we were having a meeting of peace advocates, um, people who have been working to try to bring about human rights and peace in that country for for many years. Many of them working under the Marcos dictatorship, and during the last 20 years since uh, democracy was reestablished there. And one of the things which came out in the conversations repeatedly was people starting to say, you know, actually, climate change is an opportunity. Because climate change could be the threat against which we just have to unite, whether we like it or not. And these tasks of adaptation, which need to be carried out, these could be the tasks around which divided communities could cooperate, maybe for the first time, and learn the habit of cooperation and learn the habit of working together. So actually, uh, climate change could be the opportunity to be building a peaceful society. It's almost like it's the last thing that really forces you back against the wall, into the corner. You've now got nowhere to go except in a peaceful direction. Dan Smith is Secretary General of International Alert, an independent organization that's promoting peace in over 20 countries. In 2007, he authored the report A Climate of Conflict, The Links Between Climate Change, Peace, and War. I'm Paul Ingalls, and that's our topic today, and you can link to that report through our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Next, we visit with Thomas Homer Dixon, chair at the Trudeau Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Toronto. He's devoted much of his academic career since the late 1980s, exploring the connection between environmental stress and violence in developing countries. Carol Boss asked him if he wasn't a bit ahead of his time when he got started. Well, it's appalling in some ways to think that it's almost two decades ago, but it is. Uh, you know, in some ways it seems almost like yesterday to me. Uh, uh, Inevitably, one's research is influenced by one's particular personality and background and personal history, and that was the case for me. I grew up in British Columbia on Vancouver Island, uh, which is just, uh, some of your listeners may know that it's just one of the most magnificent outdoor environments in the world. And my father uh, was a uh, a forester who... uh, was very concerned about environmental issues and about sustainable forestry. And my mother was a a landscape painter and an artist and wildlife photographer. So I spent a lot of time in the outdoors and and really, in some ways, 
became an environmentalist when I was still very young. Uh, that concern, though, sort of receded to the background in my life. And, uh, uh, and during my university education, I focused a lot on, uh, in particular, the extraordinary arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union and the ongoing Cold War and conflict between the United States and Soviet Union. And then I got deeper and deeper into the causes of conflict and strife, revolution and insurgency and civil violence in various parts of the world. I wanted to understand it better. It always struck me as just a, an, an astonishingly bizarre form of human behavior and a, and, a, and a very interesting intellectual puzzle. So I focused my graduate work uh, when I was at MIT in the 1980s on on these issues of conflict. And, uh, but when I was concluding my degree, I, I had this desire to go back in some sense to my roots and to start thinking more and more about environmental issues. And so I, I decided to bring those two interests of mine together, the, the interest in conflict and the interest in the environment, and in particular to look at how environmental stress might contribute to conflict in various parts of the world. Uh, and when I came to the University of Toronto from MIT, I uh, raised some fairly substantial research money from various foundations to uh, uh, bring together a number of researchers from around the world to focus on what those linkages between environmental stress and violence might be. Can you kind of explain in more detail what you define as um, environmental stress? Within the work that we did during that decade, uh, we were focusing in particular on uh, renewable resources in poor countries. Uh, in those days, and it's still largely true, about half the world's population depends upon local supplies of fresh water, of cropland, of fuel wood, to provide for their daily survival, their daily needs. They grow their own food locally, they go out to a stream or a well nearby, or sometimes a long way away, and pack the water back to their house and uh, or to their farm. Uh, they gather local fuel wood and sticks and uh, uh, straw, perhaps, to cook their food and to heat their homes. And those are the three kinds of environmental uh, resources that we looked at in particular. We looked at cropland, freshwater, and forests. And we looked at places where those were under stress, where those resources were degraded or overused, where perhaps there were too many people for the resources that were available in those areas, and then tried to understand what kind of effects those scarcities of cropland, forests, and water had on people. You know, how did it affect their lives? How did, did it make them poorer? Did it cause them to move? Uh, did it uh, deepen divisions between ethnic groups in their, in their communities? Uh, did it weaken institutions, weaken, uh, say, local governments and even national governments? So we investigated all of those things really, really closely with an eye on what the what the possibilities were for conflict, uh, in particular uh, insurgency and revolution and guerrilla war within these societies, what, how these stresses might contribute to those kinds of conflict. And some of those stresses are, are consequences of uh, climate change. Well, in those days, that wasn't the case because climate change had not really manifested itself around the world as a as a as a stressor yet. Uh, we, that was very interesting. You know, in the early days, we were talking a lot about climate change because the the initial projections were coming out, and people were very concerned within the 
cognoscenti within within uh, uh, groups of academics and scholars and policymakers who were thinking about what the world might be like a decade, two decades, three decades out. But the world hadn't in the in the late 80s and early 90s. The world hadn't really started to show the world the, the planet's climate hadn't really started to show signals of climate change. The signal hadn't really emerged from the noise. Uh, maybe a bit in the late 1980s, but you know there's a big debate about it. Uh, certainly, there weren't major social disruptions occurring yet as a result of climate change. Nonetheless, I spent quite a bit of time with my colleagues thinking through what might happen if the climate did start to change and what the implications would be. And it turns out that a lot of that original analysis we did now uh, quite some time ago uh, is really relevant because now we are seeing climate change affecting people all over the world. And we're seeing real impacts now affecting potentially hundreds of millions of people. Thomas Homer Dixon is chair of the Peace and Conflict Studies Department at the University of Toronto. And we'll have more of our conversation with him about the link between climate change and conflict when we return on Peace Talks Radio right after this break. I'm Paul Ingalls. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Today, the link between climate change, peace, and conflict. The awarding of the Nobel Peace Prize in 2007 to Al Gore and the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change challenged people to think about how the changes in the Earth's climate brought on by global warming could manifest in threats to peace, security, and stability around the world. Our host, Carol Boss, is speaking now with Dr. Thomas Homer Dixon, author of many books and chair of the Trudeau Center for Peace and Conflict Studies at the University of Toronto. Let me ask you what you think about the impact of the awarding of the um, Nobel Peace Prize to Al Gore and um, to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. I think it's good. I think that uh, I think that people do need to recognize that uh, climate change has security implications. Now, it can have, in a sense, soft security implications, most obviously, in that it affects people's quality of life. There's a big debate out there among scholars as to how broadly we should define security. And there are some people who want to redefine security so that it, it really it becomes synonymous with human well-being. And if you're going to define security broadly like that, then there's absolutely no question that climate change is going to have security implications. There are other people, and I kind of put myself in this camp, who say that security should be more narrowly defined as relating to issues of violence and conflict, uh, safety from uh, invasion or attack, if you're talking about national security. 
and uh, and I'm quite comfortable with that more narrow, more conventional, more traditional definition. And the key thing is that I think our research has shown, uh, the research that we did many years ago has shown that environmental stress, like climate change, can have big security implications in those narrow terms. It can lead in combination with other factors, it can lead to violence. It can lead to societal breakdown. It can lead to uh, in, enormous trauma within societies. So uh, for, for both those reasons, I think it was good news that uh, the Nobel Peace Prize went to both the IPCC and Al Gore because these are genuinely security issues. Now, that is a controversial position the uh, committee took, and the, the statements I'm making are are controversial. There's some people who think that climate change doesn't have any security implications at all, but I think they're wrong. You know, I was reading on your website that um, you use a, a theoretical and conceptual structure, and then you ground the analysis in a detailed empirical study. And I'm wondering if you can share with us um, one of the case studies as an example that you've used. We've done a lot of case studies. We've done, we've done. Uh, uh, studies of the Philippines, of South Africa, of Haiti, of uh, Chiapas and Mexico, uh, Indonesia, China, Gaza Strip. In each case, looking at you know a particular resource or a combination of resources that's under stress, and then looking at the social implications, looking for what that's doing for conflict in that society. You know, in Gaza, we looked at water, for example, which is a critically scarce resource. One case that I uh, I studied fairly closely myself is the Philippines case, and I traveled there and gathered a lot of uh, information, and then uh, and then worked with some researchers to understand that case better. Uh, the Philippines is a an archipelago of islands, uh, some of which are very very poor that have a um, kind of feudal land owning relationship, and it's some in the middle of the archipelago, some islands. Uh, are called a set of islands called the Viseas, are known for um, sugar production. Um, one in particular, Negros, is an island I visited, and uh, it's a place where there's been an ongoing, very vicious communist insurgency. Uh, and I was interested in trying to understand how that insurgency might have been influenced by environmental problems on uh, on the island of Negros. Uh, the island's very mountainous. Uh, it has uh, interior hills that are very high and quite inaccessible, and then coastal plains that are uh, flat and rich with rich soil. And those those coastal plains have been essentially captured by they're owned almost entirely by these very rich landowning elites. Uh, and uh, and they they have huge sugarcane plantations, and they employ um, very very poor laborers uh, to harvest the sugar, and who work in quite wretched conditions. Something that's happened over the decades in Negros is is the population has grown very fast of these uh, land poor laborers, and we've seen large migrations of the, of people who couldn't find work on the sugarcane plantations into the upland areas, up into the mountains. The mountains were originally forested, uh, very rich forests that stabilized the landscape. Um, but as the populations moved in, they cleared the forest. Of course, they had to. They needed to feed themselves. And uh, they cleared the forest um, by burning it, cutting it down, and by burning it. Uh, loggers also went up into these upland areas and, and took away the mahogany and other valuable timber. And the result over time was a kind of denuding of the landscape. 
one thing I did when I got there, I wanted to get a sense for what the landscape looked like. So I hired a plane and I flew uh, over the island. And, uh, and, and it's a landscape that is not uncommon in much of the developing world now. It's um, a mountainous area that's now completely deforested. Uh, and you have people living on very steep slopes uh, high up on the mountains, uh, trying to eke out a living by growing corn or grain or something like that. And, and because the land is denuded of forests, uh, and, uh, and in the Philippines you get a lot of storms, they have 50 or more major storms uh, during a season, the, wa- the land washes away. It erodes, and they become the people who are trying to live there become poorer and poorer over time. Now, it's those upland communities that have been the principal supporters of the communist insurgency, the New People's Army insurgency, which was very, very strong during the Marcos years in the 70s and uh, 80s, uh, declined for a while after democracy was reintroduced and and uh, there were some attempts at land reform. But it's become increasingly vigorous because the underlying ecological problem, the underlying land scarcity and land degradation that makes people poor in these communities has not been addressed. And so we're seeing that the, the uh, upland communist insurgency in the Philippines is almost impossible to stamp out in the absence of dealing with these ecological problems. There are some societies that appear to adapt really well to environmental stress, and others suffer, as you have written, from migrations and from worsened poverty and other factors as well. Why do some societies successfully adapt while others don't? Well, that's really the $64,000 question, Uh, and it really relates to the issue of climate change. are we going to have the capacity to respond creatively with innovation, with solutions to the climate change challenge that we're facing? Uh, I think of this in terms of what I call an ingenuity gap. In fact, I wrote a book titled The Ingenuity Gap. There are, uh, there are factors that are driving up our requirement for more complicated and sophisticated solutions to our to our problems. Problems are getting harder, and so we need better solutions, and we need a faster rate of delivery of solutions. And then there are, there are things that actually, in some societies, stop the delivery of solutions, uh, actually prevent societies from responding. Even though problems are getting harder, those societies can't respond. And so in many of the cases we were looking at, we started to dig under the surface and look at the things that would keep uh, people and governments and institutions from effectively solving their problems. Uh, Things like corruption, uh, um, governments that don't have adequate finances are not going to be able to effectively um, solve their citizens' problems. Uh, And something that comes up over and over again is the power of special interests who want to maintain the status quo and block any useful reform. In the Philippines, again, uh, there was a period of time after the Marcos regime collapsed when there was a real push for land reform. And land reform, uh, redistributing land to poor people in the Philippines, is probably a prerequisite to solve their environmental problems. Um, you need to be able to give people property rights. You need to be able to give them the right to some land so they have an incentive to take care of it. Uh, 
and there was a, there was a sense for a, a year or so that things were really going to change, that there was going to be a, uh, there was really going to be serious land reform in the country. But then it was blocked, as it is so often in many of these societies, by powerful landowners and special interests who just wanted to maintain the land arrangements the way they've always been, and that was. Uh, uh, an opportunity that was was wasted, and it was a crippling blow to the, the progress of the country in dealing with its problems. And that's an, that's the kind of thing, the power of special, special interests, the kind of factor that gets in the way of societies solving their problems. That that means that they can't close the ingenuity gap, as I call it. You know what really interests me about you. Um... You're a man of academia, you, you are a research person, and you also write articles in more popular magazines. I saw an op-ed piece that you wrote in the New York Times. Do you think this approach, this way of doing things for yourself, has really made a difference in terms of information being more readily acceptable by the general public? I've really made it my agenda try to be a bridge between uh, the scholarly world and the world of academic thinking about these problems and the general public, because I think, the, I think knowledge has to flow very rapidly to the general public. The general public needs to come to some uh, understanding, even a fairly sophisticated technical understanding of what's happening with climate before they can really wrap their heads around and, and adjudicate between various proposals as to how we're going to solve uh, climate change. Increasingly, I'm thinking that the problems we face are a manifestation of a, of a radical failure of democracy, that our conventional democratic institutions are not adequate to allow for the kind of flow of solutions and the mobilization around solutions that we need. And uh, the only alternative I see at this point is to open up the democratic process, get more people participating, to let knowledge flow from elites and from experts into the general public and create as much experimentation and as much discussion and, uh, and solution generation as we can see within, within the public. And that's one reason I spend a lot of my time writing op-eds and writing books for the general public. Do you have off the top of your head some ideas about how people can wrap their heads around some of these issues and do something in their lives? Yes, yes, I do. Uh, first of all, I think it's really important that people realize that climate change in particular, which I think is probably ultimately the most threatening environmental challenge human beings will ever face, that climate change is not just a matter of the temperature getting warmer outside. It's going to affect every aspect of our economies and societies and the way we live, and especially the lives of our children and our grandchildren, because the biggest impacts are going to manifest themselves later in this century. Uh, and, and it will have effects on not just quality of life, but on life, period. It's going to affect whether societies can actually maintain themselves as stable, coherent, productive enterprises, whether people have safe, secure lives. It, it, climate change will, will penetrate into the very core of our, of our societies and of people's lives in a way that affects their basic security. I think that's the first thing that people need to understand. This is not just about temperatures getting warmer. 
It's about whether people can have jobs, about whether they can feed themselves, about whether their children are going to be safe, about whether their homes are going to be safe. In the long run, it's going to have implications for that stuff. So that's the first thing that I think people need to realize. The second thing is that climate change is a, is a tractable problem. It's a problem we can solve. We have the technology, you know, like they used to say in the Six Million Dollar Man. You know, it, it, we, can, we can do this. Uh, it's mostly about will. It's about m- mobilization. It's about political leadership. And it's about action at the individual and community level. Fifty percent of the climate change problem is going to be solved by things that people do in their households and in their communities, individual changes that people make in how much energy they consume, what kind of technologies they use, what kind of lifestyles they lead. We don't have to sacrifice quality of life here, but we do have to change the way we live, uh, probably fairly significantly. And we can still be very, very happy, though. Uh, And that's stuff that can start right now. Uh, You know, people deride Al Gore when he talks about changing light bulbs. But the first step is changing a light bulb. There's a lot more that needs to be done, and a lot of it's going to be a lot harder than changing a light bulb. But the first thing you need to do is think about the simple things and the easy things, and then you can go on to the harder. And it's possible for everybody to do that. Uh, so, so we can participate in a variety of ways as individuals in making this world a better place and, and dealing with the climate change problem. Some of it can be personal at the level of the household. Some of it can be in terms of our own lifestyle practices. And some of it can be in the level of our political, our political mobilization and, and lobbying for changes in government policies. And in particular, giving courageous political leaders who want to do the right thing the cover that they need, the support they need to go ahead and do it. Uh, and uh, and that, that happens one conversation, one conference, one letter to the editor, one article to a community newspaper, one dinner discussion at a time. Dr. Thomas Homer Dixon oversees the Peace and Conflict Studies Department at the University of Toronto. He spoke with our interviewer, Carol Boss. You can link to our guests' websites and read more about climate change and its relationship to global security and peace building at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Peace Talks Radio is produced by the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated. We count on tax-deductible contributions from people like you to keep our program on the air and available online. So I'd like to invite you to consider a contribution in any amount. You can charge it to your credit card on our secure website or find out where to mail a check. Just follow the Contribute link on our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's also where you can go to hear all the programs in our series, read partial transcripts, order CDs, sign up for a podcast and a monthly newsletter, all at peacetalksradio.com. Support also comes from the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the Peace Tales CD Project, and KUNM at the University of New Mexico. Our theme music was written and performed by Ali Adelman. We had technical assistance from Nola Daves Moses. Website designed by Genevieve Russell of storyportraitmedia.com. Web updating by Gonzalo Rafat. Transcripts by Rogie Riverstone. Our host today was Carol Boss. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to Peace Talks Radio. Music